If you have your Bibles with you, I would invite you to turn one last time to the book of 2 Samuel, to 2 Samuel chapter 24. We are come now to the end of this book, and we have journeyed together some several months through it. If you've been with us for some period of time at Christ Church, a few years ago we had the opportunity to go through 1 Samuel, and now in my ministry here, which is in its 16th year, we have done much of the history of the people of Israel, the book of Genesis, most of the book of Exodus, the book of Joshua, 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Kings, Esther, Ezra, Nehemiah. And so the Lord has much for us to learn today from the lives of His people in Israel. And so this morning we're going to look at this last chapter, chapter 24. If you would please give attention to the reading of God's holy word. For the word of the Lord is completely inerrant. The word of the Lord is completely sufficient. And the word of the Lord is completely authoritative. 2 Samuel 24, beginning at verse 1. Again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And he incited David against them, saying, Go! Number Israel and Judah. So the king said to Joab, the commander of the army, who was with him, Go through all the tribes of Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, and number the people, that I may know the number of the people. But Joab said to the king, May the Lord your God add to the people a hundred times as many as they are, while the eyes of my lord the king still see it. But why does my lord the king delight in this thing? But the king's word prevailed against Joab and the commanders of the army. So Joab and the commanders of the army went out from the presence of the king to number the people of Israel. <clears throat> and they crossed the Jordan and began from Aroer, and from the city that is in the middle of the valley toward Gad and on to Jazer. Then they came to Gilead and to Kadesh in the land of the Hittites, and they came to Dan, and from Dan they went around to Sidon. And they came to the fortress of Tyre, and to all the cities of the Hivites and Canaanites. And they went out to the Negeb of Judah at Beersheba. So when they had gone through all the land, they came to Jerusalem, and at the end of nine months and twenty days. And Joab gave the sum of the numbering of the people to the king. In Israel there were eight hundred thousand valiant men who drew the sword. And the men of Judah were 500,000. But David's heart struck him after he had numbered the people. And David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. But now, O Lord, please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. And when David arose in the morning, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Gad, David's seer, saying, Go and say to David, Thus says the Lord, three things I offer you. Choose one of them that I may do it to you. So Gad came to David and told him and said to him, Shall three years of famine come to you in your land? Or will you flee three months before your foes while they pursue you? Or shall there be three days of pestilence in the land? Now consider and decide what answer I shall return to him who sent me. Then David said to Gad, I am in great distress. Let us fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercy is great. 
but let me not fall into the hand of man. So the Lord sent a pestilence on Israel from morning until the appointed time. And there died of the people from Dan to Beersheba 70,000 men. And when the angel stretched out his hand toward Jerusalem to destroy it, the Lord relented from the calamity and said to the angel who was working destruction among the people, It is enough. Now stay your hand. And the angel of the Lord was by the threshing floor of Aruna the Jebusite. Then David spoke to the Lord when he saw the angel who was striking the people and said, Behold, I have sinned and I have done wickedly. But these sheep, what have they done? Please let your hand be gathered against me and against my father's house. And Gad came that day to David and said to him, Go up, raise an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Aruna the Jebusite. So David went up at Gad's word as the Lord commanded. And when Aruna looked down, he saw the king and his servants coming on toward him. And Aruna went out and paid homage to the king with his face to the ground. And Aruna said, Why has my lord the king come to his servant? David said, To buy the threshing floor from you, in order to build an altar to the Lord, that the plague may be averted from the people. Then Aruna said to David, Let my lord the king take and offer up what seems good to him. Here are the oxen for the burnt offering, and the threshing sledges and the yokes of the oxen for the wood. All this, O king, Aruna gives to the king. And Aruna said to the king, May the Lord your God accept you. But the king said to Aruna, No, but I will buy it from you for a price. I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God that cost me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen for fifty shekels of silver. And David built there an altar to the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. So the Lord responded to the plea for the land, and the plague was averted from Israel. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray for his blessing upon it. Lord, we ask that you would open up your word to us this morning. That in it we would see your grace. In it we would see the Lord Jesus Christ. For it is he that we long to be with. Help us, O Lord. This we ask in Christ's precious name. Amen. Well, we have come now to the end of the book. As we have seen, this book is so much more than a biography of David. The entirety of the book is arranged with a purpose. We've seen especially David as a sinner and also as a type of Christ. And these final chapters are especially designed to show us the gospel. We've seen that they're a form of an appendix. They're not in chronological order with the rest of the book, but they are purposefully done to show us the gospel. So, it is here. The details are hard, mysterious. But the theme is not. Sin is ugly. Mercy is found in confession. And God provides sacrifice for sin. 
Let's begin then as we open up chapter 24 to look at David and Israel's sin. Now there is the problem of what David did. This chapter is a bit of a conundrum. That's a fancy word for problem. It's difficult to interpret. And at the center of it all is David's numbering of the people of Israel. Everything flows from that. The sin, the judgment, God's mercy, building the altar. All of that happens as a result of David's numbering the people. So what did David do? Well, we see here in verse 2 that he told Joab to go and number the people that I may know the number of the people. There is a purpose in mind. This is not an ordinary census. This is not like the census that you fill out every 10 years to tell how many people are in your household so that the government can decide how many representatives are in Congress. No, this is a different kind of census entirely. David wants essentially the army, the men numbered. They're not going to be counting babies. They're not going to count women. They're not even going to count men who are too old to bear weaponry. This is a census of the military might of Israel. And so Joab and the commanders go out throughout all of Israel. They start briefly to the east, and then they go in a counterclockwise fashion through all of the land of Israel. They cover the whole land, leaving nothing out from Dan in the far north to Beersheba in the south. They count everyone. They actually even include the military allies of Israel when they add to the number. You see this in verse 7. They go to the cities of the Hivites and the Canaanites. They go to Tyre. They go to the Negev. So they're gathering a number of the fighting force of Israel. As we look at this, the first question that comes perhaps to your mind is, why was it wrong? What did David do? That was so wrong. As we look at the whole of this story, we see that David shouldn't have done this. This is a case where perhaps you feel like this in your own life, where we wish we had a time machine. You know those stories where your older self comes back to visit you now and says, listen, listen, don't take that job, whatever you do. Don't buy that car. Don't be that kind of major in college. Just Trust me. You say, well, who are you? I'm you. Just older, and I know. Just trust me. We would send David back to himself and say, listen, bad idea to number the people. Just scratch that one off. But we don't have that option before us, do we? And neither does David. <clears throat> now, perhaps David should have known not to do this. After all, in verse 3, we see that Joab is very skeptical about this. Joab doesn't like this idea. He doesn't think it should be done. And Joab is not exactly an ethical guru. I mean, we've seen that throughout this book. He does what he thinks is best. If that's murdering someone, so be it. If that's besieging a city, so be it. Joab is not exactly a tender conscience kind of guy. And so... A good rule of thumb could be if Joab thinks it's a sinful and bad idea, it almost certainly is. So you should listen to Joab in this sense. But 
David doesn't do that. Now, this is something that we should take a lesson from. Not that you should go out and seek Joabs to be friends with in your own life, but when someone comes up to you and says, I'm not sure this is the best course of action for you. You ought to pause. You ought to listen. You ought to think through it, check it against Scripture. Because God may be sending that person to you for your own benefit. Don't just bulldoze over advice. Talk it through. Listen. Well, some say that the problem was that David didn't pay a poll tax that was required. Back in Exodus chapter 30, this type of census was accounted for. And Israel was to pay a tax, a head tax, of a half of a shekel for each man numbered. Josephus is of this opinion. That's what the Jewish tradition says. If David would have paid the tax, it would have been all right. But he didn't. He violated Exodus 30. But there's a problem here. We're not told that he didn't pay the tax. And as a matter of fact, in Exodus 30, we're not told that that was a perpetual ordinance. It might have just been done the first time before Israel entered the land. So we're not sure about that. Others say, no, no, no. It's David's motivation. He's motivated by pride to do this. David wants to see how great he is and how great his kingdom is. And we can easily identify with that. This is the numbers game, right? This is what happens to churches all the time. We judge our effectiveness, our faithfulness to the Lord by our size, by how many people we have in attendance. And so we could fall for the same trick. But this is something just common to human nature. I don't know about you, but when I watch the Olympics, I always keep an eye on the medal tracker. And I enjoy the Olympics by how many medals America wins. And, and not just total medals. We've got to have the most gold medals, too. You don't just want to stock up on the bronze, right? Now, I, I will admit, I don't know where we are this year. I haven't spent five seconds watching the Olympics. And, and that's pointed because I'm not about to give time to an Olympics hosted by a country practicing genocide and dictatorship and authoritarianism, who tell our athletes they have to be locked in rooms and put spy apps on their phones. But regardless of that, you get the principle. Numbers are important to us. Still others say it's not pride, but it's rather instead unbelief. It's a lack of faith by David. See, David knew the world was a dangerous place, maybe better than anyone. There were many enemies surrounding Israel. And so David wanted to know if the army could keep him secure. He wanted to know how big his army was so he could have security from his enemies around him. The trouble is, this is not how the king of Israel should act. As a matter of fact, we see the exact opposite of Gideon and his forces in Judges chapter 7. You remember that scene where Gideon brings forces to fight the enemy, and the Lord says, no, 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 send a whole bunch of them home. And Gideon does, and he says, no, 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 the Lord says, send even more of them home. Because I want you to know that this victory was won by the Lord, not by the might of men. And so if David wanted to know if his army was up to the task, it's sort of the exact opposite principle 
a lack of trust in God. Now, this is another warning for us. Because you see, we can believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we have to be aware that sometimes we can live like pagans. Even though we profess Jesus, we live in a way that just like all of our unbelieving neighbors and friends do. We have to trust the Lord, not just say we trust the Lord. Well, in the end, we don't know. God doesn't tell us. And that has to suffice for us because if we had to know, God would have told us. But there's an even bigger problem lurking here. What David did is not as important as why he came to do it. Our text is difficult. The idea of the census did not originate with David. It starts with a mystery in verse 1. The anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. Now that itself is clear, but the question is, why was the anger of the Lord kindled against Israel? Was it perhaps because of their rebellion with Absalom or with Sheba? Was it because they had rejected God's covenant and His covenant head, David the king? Was it the disunity between Israel and Judah that we saw in chapter 20? Well, again, the answer is, we don't know. We're not told. But that leads us to the real problem. If David's census was wrong, why did the Lord, in verse 1, incite him to take the census? And there's more that makes it even more confusing. In a parallel account, in 2 Chronicles 21... The text tells us that it was Satan that incited David to take the census. Second Chronicles is a parallel account written several hundred years later during the exile. And then, of course, beyond God and Satan, we have David making the choice, the decision himself. So who is to blame here? There's a theological problem behind this problem. We think that God has to explain Himself to us. That God has to give a satisfactory answer to us about His actions and His will. But that's not what the Bible is about. The Bible isn't God's defense to His creation. No, the Bible is about the redemption of sinners by the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, that doesn't mean that there's nothing that we can learn or explain from our text. The most likely explanation is that Israel had done something so sinful as to bring about God's wrath and anger. And God brought about judgment and punishment through this census. After all, God is the ultimate cause of everything. But that doesn't mean there aren't secondary causes as well. So here we have God permitting Satan to tempt David in such a way that when David falls, judgment will come. God doesn't compel David to act this way. God is not the author of sin, but he tests David. And David fails the test. Now, there is a difference between testing and temptation. 
The difference is in the motivation. In testing us, God does not desire our sin. He does not seek unrighteousness. He brings a test to prove our character and our faith. James chapter 1 tells us that God tempts no one, but the scripture is full of examples of God testing his people. Satan, on the other hand, tempts. The design of temptation is to bring about sin and misery. That's what Satan wants. The goal is completely different. And that's why God never tempts, because temptation always comes from evil. Either externally, as we saw a few weeks ago, when we looked at Matthew chapter 4 with Kurt, how Satan came to Jesus and tempted him with evil, with a twisting of Scripture. Or else temptation comes internally, from our sin nature. We desire something that's sinful because we are sinners. And this is important. It's why Jesus could not sin, even though he was really tempted. He had no sin nature to bring about temptation. All of Jesus' temptation was external. And being God, Jesus could not participate in evil. But the external temptation was still there and real. So how do we explain verse 1 then? One translation says that it was the anger of the Lord that was responsible. And that the quote that's given in verse 1 is actually David speaking. But that doesn't really help. Because if the anger of the Lord is what started this, who's responsible for the Lord's anger? But the Lord. And if David is prompted to make this statement, isn't the one who prompts him still the cause of the statement? So that doesn't help us. The Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, pulls a fast one. It inserts Satan into this text. It takes Satan out of the parallel passage in 2 Chronicles and says, well, if Satan's there, he should have been here too. Let's put him in. But we are left with our text. It's hard. I think the answer is that God is behind this, as he is behind everything. He allows Satan to tempt David, and he allows David to sin, all to bring about his will. But God is not the author of sin. Our Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 3, paragraph 1, says that God decrees all things, not just important things, not just most things, not just good things, but all things. The Bible tells us that God is responsible for the number of hairs on your head. But that same confession says that God is not the author of sin. His decree to bring about all things does not make him the author of sin. It does not deny that there are secondary causes. And it does not do violence to the will of his creatures. Now, how is that possible? I don't know. But I know from passages like this that the Bible teaches that. God decreed this census in order to bring about his will. 
to judge Israel for their sin. But it was Satan who tempted David to bring about evil. And it was David who chose to sin. The real question here is not whether you fully understand the sovereignty of God. The real question is whether you submit to it. Well, there's a second thing that we see here. In light of David's sin, we see the mercy of God. So David numbers the people. It is a smashing success, we read in verse 9. But almost immediately, he comes under conviction in verse 10. But David's heart struck him after he had numbered the people. Notice that there's no prompting here. This is spontaneous. The prophet hasn't come to him yet. And the conviction is very deep. The language is vivid. His heart struck him. I love the old King James here. David's heart smote him. This is no light tap on the shoulder. David is aware of his sin. One translation puts it this way, that David felt guilty to get at the concept behind this. And this is seen in David's confession to the Lord in the second part of verse 10. I have sinned greatly in what I have done, but now, O Lord, please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. Notice, David doesn't do any analyzing here. He doesn't try to figure out whether there's something worthwhile in what he's done. He doesn't psychoanalyze himself and say, I wonder what I was thinking and why I was thinking that. And why would I possibly have done this? No, he doesn't do that either. He goes right to God and he admits a great sin. This is not a minor thing. This word is used throughout the Bible. It is overwhelming. But then he says, I've acted with great foolishness. That foolishness is the same word that David used when he prayed to the Lord to turn Ahithophel's counsel to Absalom to foolishness. It is, he, he's saying, I acted with godlessness. It's of no accord at all. It has no relationship to reality. Now, what can David not do here? Well, he can't go back and undo what he's done. I'm sure there are many of us that when we're struck with the sin that we've committed, wish we could use an eraser or a button to take us back so we get a do-over. David can't pretend that this never happened. He can't ignore it. He can't try to justify it or minimize it. All he can do is acknowledge it and confess it. And this is wise counsel for you. You can't outsmart God or hope He doesn't know what you've done. All you can do is admit your sin and go to Him. Will you do that? That's the only logical, rational course to take. And God does not abandon David. Often the reason why we don't confess is a fear of being abandoned. Children don't want to confess to their parents because they're afraid that their parents are going to give up on them, kick them out of the house. And that's sometimes, I think, as Christians, what we're afraid of with God. That if God finds out how badly we've sinned, He's going to say, oh, I'm done with you. Yeah, you used to be saved, but not anymore. Get out. 
It's a way of thinking like this. Most of the world thinks, I've messed up. I can't let my dad know. But as a Christian, we need to think, I've messed up. I have to go to my dad. I need his help. That's what we do when we confess and go to the Lord. And so God doesn't abandon David. He sends the prophet Gad to David. Gad is someone that David had known and loved for many, many years. Gad had been with David since the days they were running from Saul. Now, before we focus on the choices that David is given, we have to think about the mercy of God in sending the prophet to David. God could have left David twisting in the wind, wondering when the judgment would come or if there would be judgment. But God is merciful from the outset. He sends his prophet to David to let David know that God has heard him and that mercy is available. And so in verses 12 and 13, we see that God gives David three options. They appear each to have two components. One is length and one is intensity. So three years of famine, three months of fleeing from your enemies, or three days of pestilence. They're three very different type of things. And so in verse 14, David chooses, although he really doesn't choose if you look at the text. He says, I'm in great distress. Let us fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercy is great, but let me not fall into the hand of man. So you can take, I think, from this text that David does not want three months fleeing from his enemies because he doesn't want to fall into the hands of man. But he doesn't exactly say, give me the pestilence. He just says, let me fall into the hands of the Lord. I'm in great distress. He says, I can't choose. In essence, he says, God, you choose for me because you are more merciful to me than I could be to myself. That's how merciful God is. I'll fall on the mercy of God. Why does David say that? Because he says God's mercy is great. And, and that is a different word than the great sin or the great foolishness. No, here it has the connotation of manifold, many, rich, overabundant, sufficient. And David was right, wasn't he? Look at verse 16. And when the angel stretched out his hand toward Jerusalem to destroy it, the Lord said, it is enough. Now stay your hand. The pestilence was bad enough in verse 15. 70,000 men die, but we're not even told from that text that it went to full three days. Do you notice that? It went from the morning until the appointed time. It could have just been one day of pestilence, for all we know. We're not certain from the text. But when the angel came to Jerusalem, God showed his mercy. Ralph Davis puts it so well. We tend to look upon mercy as a divine exception rather than as the divine character. Not so, David. Do you know this mercy-giving 
God? Have you met the one who spares those who deserve nothing but wrath? Because that is the God of the Bible. The Lord who sent Jesus Christ to die on a cross for sinners like us so that we could have life. There is no one like this God. No matter what you have done, you want to fall into the hands of this merciful God. Well, the final thing that we see is that God's mercy is not arbitrary. We see a sacrifice that God institutes. Now, it's not as if the Lord is impulsively angry and that God's mercy is arbitrary. It's not as if God relents in a haphazard way. No, the last part of this chapter explains that for us. But before we look at verses 18 through 25, we need to note verse 16. It's important for us to see where the angel was when God said, enough. Do you see it? He was at the threshing floor of Aruna, the Jebusite. Remember that. So David first offers, in verse 17, to intercede for the people, to obtain mercy. He says, punish me and my house, not the sheep. But God has an another entire plan. He tells David instead to raise up an altar in verse 18. And what is an altar? Do you know what an altar is? It's a place where you offer sacrifices. That's the definition of an altar. That's why in our church we don't have an altar. We have a communion table where we come to commune with God's people and celebrate the Lord's Supper. We have a pulpit where the Word of God is preached. We have a baptismal font where those who belong in the covenant of God are baptized. But there's no altar here because there's no more sacrifice for sin. Jesus has done that sacrifice once and for all. It would be blasphemous for us to have an altar to assume we needed more sacrifice than that which Jesus had performed. So, my point is, when God says build an altar, implicit in that is, and make sacrifices. That's what it means. The sacrifices are a part of the altar. And we see this, it goes all the way back to Noah. Noah built an altar and sacrificed upon it. Moses built an altar and sacrificed upon it. The judges built an altar and sacrificed upon it. And now David is doing the same. And God is not making a suggestion. No, it's a command. That tells us that this altar and the sacrifices are important. It's as if God was commanding the sacrifices themselves. When we read verse 16, we should not think that God's wrath was satisfied. Rather, it was paused. Paused until it could be satisfied. You see, we would be quick to run to the place where judgment is over, but not God. No, God knows that His wrath and judgment is just, and therefore it must be satisfied. That is how God deals with sin. He doesn't wink at it. He doesn't ignore it. He doesn't pretend it's unimportant. No, He deals with it fully, finally, completely. 
in the work of Jesus Christ. In Jesus' sacrifice. So David goes to Aruna. Aruna lives outside the city walls. He is a Jebusite. And from the text, he appears very nervous. Oh, king, why are you coming to come visit me? Is there anything I can do for you, king? Whatever you like, king. He's almost relieved by David's request in verse 22. And he doesn't really understand it. Do you notice pronouns are important? He says to David, your God. He doesn't say our God or my God. He says, your God. But David understands. You see, that's the difference. Aruna just wants David off his back. He wants to help the king. He wants to be seen as pro-king. So here, take the threshing floor. Take the oxen. Take the wood. And David says, no, 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 no. I will not sacrifice something that has no cost. Because sacrifices, by definition, are not free. That's what makes them a sacrifice. And it's at that point that the Lord responds and the plague leaves the land. Well, there's one last aspect to this that we'll miss if we don't look to another place. If we go to 2 Chronicles chapter 3, we will see that Solomon begins the construction of the temple. Now, what is the temple? The temple is the place where God's name dwelt. It's also the place of sacrifice. It's where atonement was made for sin. It's where the high priest made the sacrifice once per year. It's where the peace offerings and the burnt offerings were made. There was a constant stream of blood and smoke coming up out of the temple. It was the place where Israel knew that sin was dealt with. And that the wrath of God was sacrificed. Where was that temple built? Here. On the threshing floor of Aruna, the Jebusite. That's where the temple was built. Where God's wrath was stayed. And there's another connection that we are meant to see. Because in that passage in 2 Chronicles we are told that this place has another name beyond the threshing floor. It's called Moriah. And that should jog a memory in you. Because Moriah was the place where Abraham brought Isaac to sacrifice him and where the Lord provided a substitute for that sacrifice. The Lord himself gave a sacrifice of atonement. It's a picture of how God himself paid the penalty for the broken covenant of Abraham. But that's not the only connection you should see. Very near this same spot, just a bit to the west of it, is another well-known place. Its name is Golgotha, the place of the skull. It's also called Calvary. It's where another sacrifice took place. It's where the Lord Jesus Christ was hung on a cross to be the sacrifice for sin. To atone for sin. To satisfy the wrath of God and bring an end to judgment. We are meant to make that connection here. 
at the end of 2 Samuel. This book ends with the gospel. The Holy Spirit wants to see that you, like David, are a sinner before a sovereign God. And that your only hope is to throw yourself on the mercy of the Lord. And when you do, you will find that His wrath has been satisfied and His judgment answered by another. Sin is horrible. It brings about pain, death, and misery. We've seen all of that in this chapter. But there is an answer for sin. It is Jesus. When you believe that Jesus is the Son of God, and has paid the penalty for your sin in full, you can never be safer. Jesus has solved the problem of sin, how God can be just and the justifier of the ungodly. Do you know Jesus? Are you trusting Him now? If you are, then you know that the mercy of the Lord is wide and Trust Jesus now. He is your great hope. Let's pray.